feel guilty. You feel, I, I did. I, um, I felt like I wasn't enough. Felt like if I was just thinner or prettier, you know, I mean, you do, you go through that. Um, I'm not enough for him. Why does he have to seek, you know, you do go through this. And I mean, I think I learned early on in my head that my brain knew that it had nothing to do with me, but my heart still why am I not enough? Why? Uh, my wife and I talk a lot about when I was actively addicted to pornography, um, we would go to church and, and we would stand together and there would be songs and worship time and I would just be paralyzed in my shame that I felt like I shouldn't be in this place and I'm not I don't deserve to be here with all these other people who aren't like me that I'm the only one in this entire place who's dealing with this issue and, and I just couldn't sing I couldn't praise because I just didn't feel adequate I felt like a second-class Christian because of the shame Well, hey, you guys, my name is Dan, and it's my joy to serve as lead pastor here. And I want to say thank you for, for being here, for still being here. I want to thank you as, um, as we're, we're d jumping into some pretty, some pretty heady waters. I want to thank Scott and Kenyon Delk for their courage and candor to share their story with us today. We'll be hearing more from them as we go throughout this time. And the reason we're talking about this today is because we're in this series called Walk This Way, and we're walking through this passage of a New Testament letter called Ephesians. The Apostle Paul is writing, and he's in this really chunky part of this section that can, be, can make us really bristle, but it's actually very beautiful. And I just want to give you some highlights from the very beginning. Here's what he says in Ephesians 5.1, as dearly loved children walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us. As we move a little further, he says, let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. And then it concludes by saying, this is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. If we look back into that middle section, that, that word or phrase, sexual immorality in the Greek, in the original uh, language, is pornos. And we'll get more into what that means, but it's in part what sparked the, the conversation to talk about pornography from which the word stems. It means that, and it means a whole bunch of other things beyond that. But that's what we're gonna talk about today. We're gonna talk about something so very painful and personal, something that is ubiquitous and impacts every single one of us for you, it can be crippling. For you, it could be confusing. And it's certainly complex for all of us. Would you agree? Touches every single one of us. We all come to this conversation from a different place. There might be some of you who are just like, good grief, why does this matter? Why does the church always harp on this and things like this? 
And I, I hope we can talk about that. Some of you might be, might be just going, okay, this matters, but do we have to talk about this in church? And, that, and that's, that's fair too, and we still will, by the way, right? Um, others of you are like Kenyon, and you're walking with someone, and you know it matters. You know it matters because you're experiencing things like betrayal or confusion, self-doubt, and you're lost because of what's going on in your closest friend or your marriage partner or whomever it might be. And there are others of us in this room like Scott who feel paralyzed by this. So we all come to this kind of from, from a different place and really what we're doing, and, and honestly, this is what we're trying to do every time we come together, we're trying to marry two things, reality, our real lives, what really matters, what's really impacting us, and we want to practice that core value of let's just be honest with ourselves, with God, with others, let's name the reality and let's marry that with God's redemption. Those two things, we're, we're looking for the intersection of those two things. And if all we do is name the reality, like you look at culture, they're pretty good about sometimes naming reality, but if that's all it is, it leads to division, it leads to despair. But if all we do is name redemption, and sometimes the church is just good about talking about the hope that we have in Christ, but if we don't first address the reality, then we're just left with denial with a Pollyanna version of what it means to follow Jesus and with an ungrounded hope. But when we marry those two things together, at that intersection is healing and where I believe God by his spirit wants to forge a whole new reality for many of us. And that's what we've been praying for uh, leading up to this time is that God, God would do that. And, and what I wanna do in this talk, let me just give you the narrative arc of the talk. Normally, I talk about reality, then I move to the redemption, you know, bad news, good news kind of thing. I wanna do it backwards today. I wanna talk about the redemption first and then we'll come back and pick up the, uh, the reality because I just want you to hear some things straight from my heart that I believe come straight from the scriptures that we just all need to frame in what we're doing here. And number one is we're all at the same place and you're not alone. We're all at the same place, and you're not alone. God's made us all beautiful in his design. We're made in his image, but we also have this brokenness. We all, we all in one way or another, whether it's related to sexual things or whether it's re related to greed, whatever, whatever it might be, we all limp. Some of that's more visible for others and some of it more invisible, but we all together, we all got our hangups, we got our habits, we got the things that we go, why did I think that, do that? Uh, find myself in that situation, we all find ourselves there. Now, as it relates specifically to pornography, even more so, we're not alone. One out of every three Americans seek pornography monthly. One out of three. And this stat, I've been asked, is this actually true? And it is 543% of men or men, I should say it this way, are 543% more likely to look at porn than women. Now, I say that for a couple of reasons, not to beat up on men. Um, it is a drastic percentage ratio, right? But actually that number is going down uh, because of women's new and increasing high engagement with pornography. There's always been the traditional form of uh, literary pornography, Fifty Shades of Grey and all of that, but now increasingly so. It's um, now in the digital space, it's in the more straightforward pornography. What about in the church at large? 64% of Christian men struggle with this. 
view porn on a regular basis. 15% of Christian women. For senior pastors, one out of every seven senior pastors say, I struggle with this and I view it regularly. We're all at the same place, no matter what it might be, and you're not alone. That's number one. Number two, God loves you no matter what. I don't, I, like, how do I say that in a way that actually lands and sticks? And I've thought of a way that's provocative and also true. Let me put it this way. If pornography is a thing that you struggle with, God loves you just as much as when you're viewing pornography as when you're reading the Bible. Do you believe that? God is love. There's nothing you can do to earn his love. There's nothing you can do to lose his love. Now, his heart breaks, but it breaks in love. Why? Because of his deep love for you. His love is irrevocable. It's unequivocal. There's nothing you can do to lose it. There's nothing you can do to gain it. God's love is constant, no matter what. And, and you might need to grapple with that statement, that he loves you as much as you're doing a bad thing as when you're doing a good thing. You might grapple with it if you're stuck in a place like pornography or if we fancy ourselves really clean and we think we've got it all figured out. Let that just mess with you for a second because that's how high and wide and deep and broad is the love of God for every single human being, all that he created good and very good. God loves you no matter what. Third, is that our prayer and our hope is that this is a safe place today. That we just go in this space, there is no shame, there is no judgment, there is no slander, there's no slime. That I just love what, what Scott said. When I'd come in here into this room he was talking about, I'd feel like a second class Christian. I'd feel like everyone else has it figured out but me. And that's not the voice of the Father. And if you're feeling those things rising up, if you're feeling like I gotta run, if you're feeling a sense of shame, I'm a horrible person, any of those things, if you're feeling like you're getting named things, like you're an imposter, you're a cheat, or just get through this, just fake it till you make it through this time, I just wanna say that's not the voice of the Father. He doesn't bring you condemnation. He brings us conviction. But what conviction does is it doesn't push us, push us to shame or, or more hiding or more condemnation. It pushes us towards him. It compels us into a relationship with others. His voice is tender and firm because he wants so much for us. So number three, we just go, this is a shame-free zone. This is a grace place. This is a safe place. And number four, God made you and me to heal. God made us to heal. You break a bone, it's amazing how our bones come back together. When your heart breaks, it's amazing how God heals a heart. It's amazing how God heals relationships that are just on the edge. It's amazing how God wired your brain with plasticity that just as we get into the harmful effects of pornography and the like upon our brain, actually, here's the good news, is that plasticity means that God can renew our minds with new neural pathways, and he can heal the ruts in our brain and our addictive behavior. God made you and I to heal. 
And so this conversation today won't be as much about how to step into that healing. I want to uh, remind you, as Nanette did, of some ways that we want to move towards how. One is to, we're going to pray. Anybody that wants to pray about anything under the sun will do that afterwards. Two is at any point, you can call or get online with us at our care and counseling pages. There's a number and there's a bit.ly that if you just punch that in, it'll take you to the website um, with a slew of different resources and on Wednesday the 27th, we're gonna have a follow-up night. We're gonna have a professor of behavioral science from MNU, we're gonna have our care team, we're gonna have Scott and Kenyon Delk there. And so if, you're, if you just go, this is a big issue for our culture, this is a big issue for my kids, I need to increase in my awareness and increase in my training, or I identify with Scott and his story, or I identify with Kenyon and her pain. This is for all of us to attend. So I just want to ask you, this is so important. Let's all rally around and come and um, take that next step. Because the big question at the end of the day, this is, this is how we're going to end our sermon. Like, spoiler alert right here. It's an invitation by God. When the passage concludes that Christ's light might shine on you, the question we'll leave you with today is, will you step into the warmth of it? of his light. We have the, the courage just to take that one step. And I know what we think about with light, like maybe you picture a spotlight or this invasive interrogative kind of light, but that's not the light of the Father, I believe. I was thinking about on Friday, um, I was working on my, my, uh, the, my sermon. I was in our dining room and right beside me to my right uh, is a dog bed and uh, my dog Kiefer, it's just there in, in the sun, in the, like the sunspot. She's just bathing there, and yes, that's a diaper that she's wearing, but this is, this is a safe place, right? <laughs> and, and she's just basking, you know? She's just bathing in the light, in its warmth, and its radiance. Uh, Bauer, her brother, uh, he did one better. It's like, all of a sudden, he's like, I'm going to choose hardwoods. Why? Because that light is just so compelling. And I, I shared these with uh, my assistant, Jen Agan, and she goes, oh, no, no, I got better pictures of my cat, Sherman. So here's Sherm, and, and just so you know, we're, we're like equal, you know, in our dog-cat egalitarian approach. <clears throat> There's Sherm right there, um, and there he is. Uh, and then one more, this is kind of her, her favorite, I think, I think, I think, we lost, did we lose it? Wait, let's go back. Yeah, there it is, there it is, that's Sherm. Um, I mean, I, th I think the irony is clear. It's cat porn is what it is. Um, so let, let, let's go back maybe to, can we laugh by the way? Is it okay to laugh today? Because, um, but let's go back to my dog picture there. Um, because that really is the picture that um, was given to me for us today. That the warmth of heaven would fall upon us that the invitation of a father who loves you, who wants to be your safe place, that it would be all enveloping, like, like the sun flowing in on just a crisp, almost spring day after a super long winter and it just comes in through the window panes. And it's the kind of spot you just wanna sit in, where you feel safe in and where things get released in you. And that's our prayer for us today.
Let me just pray over us and then we'll continue. So Father, would your peace, just your, your cascading light, the warmth of your heart, would just fall over us and upon us. May we have an ability to discern your voice from all others. And for some of us, God, in this moment, I just, in the spirit of prayer, I just want to say to you this. I want to say, would you just make a mental note of this day, March the 17th, 2019. Just make a mental note. Because I believe that this is a pivot point. It's our deep hope. This is the day of a new reality. This will be a day that years from now you'll look back on and say, this is the day that I stepped into the warmth of his light. And it was so scary and it was, it, it, I was so afraid and I thought I'd be exposed, but actually I was enveloped by his light and by his love and I was set free. And I just want to say to you in the spirit of prayer, hear this. The fact that you're here, the fact that you're steer, still here is courage. And courage can be defined this way. Courage is walking towards the hard for your absolute best and the best of others. Walking towards the hard. It may not be easy, but it's a simple, courageous step towards your very best and the best of others. And so God, would you bring uh, us courage? Would you bring us encouragement and wrap us in the warmth of your love and light in Jesus' name? Amen. So there we have at the end of the sermon. Now shall we start? You're like, oh man, he better not re reteach all that. So a year ago, uh, you might remember this. Kansas City Royals general manager Dayton Moore was doing a press conference. And one of their players had some uh, issues come up with alcohol. So the press conference basically moved towards asking him questions like, Dayton, what, um, what do you do to care for your players off the field? And Dayton very naturally said, well, we, we work out the financial matters. And they're like, yep, check, that's good. And we, we deal with domestic abuse because that's a real issue. Yep, yep, check, that, that's good. And we talk about substance and alcohol abuse, of course. Check, check, that's good. And we talk about character. Okay, check, check, check. And then he veers off the beaten path and he says, and we talk about pornography. And it was like, I mean, you might remember this. I mean, just the, the, the airwaves on our, you know, our sports radio locally here and our, our columnists just went crazy nationally too. USA Today and the Sports Illustrated, they used headlines like, Dayton Moore's view on pornography deserves scorn and scrutiny. And they quickly wrote him off as a fundamentalist. They very, I would say, haphazardly questioned the research he was referring to. They referenced immediately the First Amendment. And then this was the most fascinating thing to me. Then they actually quoted the experts. Guess who the experts were? Adult film stars. <laughs> now... We'll, un we'll get a little bit into the analysis because it's kind of like, help me understand that. But first I want to stop because I believe there's some of us here, maybe all of us in, to some degree, but certainly the culture is saying to the church, I don't understand you. Why is this a big deal? Do you just not like sex? Are, 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 are you squeamish about it? Is this like puritanical prudishes, prudishum, prudish? Prudish, prudishness. Is that a word? 
messed it up in the nine too. Is, is this just like carryover from puritanical kind of ways? Like, why is this such a big deal? And I think that's a fair question. And so I want to just kind of start, let's move beyond just pornography and let's just like zoom out to as best we understand the scriptures, as best we understand the life and teachings of Jesus, what would be a rubric or a framework by which the Bible says sex is good. In fact, it's awesome and it does. And so I want to start with a moment in the Gospels where Jesus has encountered some, um, some religious kind of folks. They're trying to trip him up and they're asking him a very hot topic question about their time, which was on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. We're not going to get into that, but I think it's really interesting how Jesus answer, answers this kind of lose-lose question. What he decides to do to answer about divorce, remarriage, and all that is he takes them all the way back to the beginning of their scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, to the very first book, Genesis, the very first two chapters of that book, to say, to answer this question, let's talk about what frames and girds our understanding of relationship and specifically sexuality. So here in Matthew chapter 19, he says this, well, haven't you read, and he's talking to people who are the experts on these things, that at the beginning, see how he's taking us all the way back, the creator, now he's quoting from Genesis 1-2, that the creator made the male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So there are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And of course, Jesus is talking about the marriage between a man and a woman. And he's talking about, he uses this term, as does Genesis. He's quoting from Genesis, this term, one flesh. What does that mean? Is is Genesis and Jesus, as he's referring to it, is he just saying, what happens when you get married is two bodies come together? Or is it something so much more? And you might remember, uh, if you've been with us for a while, we've had Dr. Todd Fry from uh, MidAmerica Nazarene down the street, uh, just a fantastic school, and they've been an amazing resource to us. Um, he said, no, actually, when the term one flesh gets used, it's a device. The device is called a synecdoche, which means you talk about one part, but to reference the whole. And so when a man and a woman, when they, when they come together in marriage, it's not just their physical and sexual union. It's actually, and this is the mysterious part about it, they're maintaining their own individual identity and yet they're mysteriously forming this glorious union that includes their emotions, their intellect, their spiritual lives, and their physical, which includes both sexual union and non-sexual union. Sex becomes not the goal of the union, it becomes a part of and an expression of a union that is all of these things together. And they're not just like these individual lines, really, they're interconnected and all four of these are woven together like, like streams converging into one river that we call marriage. And when that comes together, and, and when uh, all of these are joined, and, I, and I, I just had this, I had this thought even about marriage, or I think maybe even this morning, that often in marriage you feel like you get the other person's worst. What really God has designed for us is to say, I'm giving you, saving for you, my most and my best, not the scraps, but my very best on all of these kind of categorical levels of who I am. And when these merge together, what does sex become? 
as American philosopher Will Durant once wrote, sex becomes a river of fire, is what he describes it as. And he goes on to say this, that sex is a river of fire that must be banked and cooled by a hundred restraints if it is not to consume in chaos both the individual and the group, namely society. And really what he's affirming is what Jesus goes on to affirm in that question and in that passage. I'm not going to show it to you per se because it kind of gets into the question of marriage and remarriage and it's the different conversation. But he uses the term pornos or pornea. He uses the term sec- uh, sexual immorality, which means anything outside of God's original design and perfect intent for us to experience, and not just for us, for others. In other words, God said, and let me just be clear, it, like you've probably heard every pastor say it, but it's just worth saying again, sex is awesome. Okay? It is awesome. And it's God's gift to humanity. And it is so awesome and so powerful that it needs riverbanks to keep the river of fire flowing in the right direction. And that's where, when Jesus uses the term joined together and he talks about flesh, he's actually using covenantal language that he wraps it. You know, these are like the riverbanks. I guess it would be like a a lazy river right? To frame it in. A covenant says, you're going to still maintain your own identity, but now there's going to be this mysterious unity between you. And you're going to offer your your very best uh, emotionally one to the other. You're going to offer your very best intellectually one to the other. You're going to offer your very best spiritually one to the other. And you're going to offer your very best and most one to another sexually and even non-sexually in a physical way. And covenant says that everything that's mine is yours and everything that's yours is mine. And the weaker joins the stronger and the stronger joins the weaker. And it's what makes it so powerful and so beautiful and so impactful on society as well. There was a study in 1934 out of Cambridge University, an anthropologist who wanted to say, what's the impact of sexual restraint, such as what a covenant provides, or sexual abandonment of restraint? And so he studied 86 different cultures spanning over 5,000 years and found this, that without exception, the cultures that practice sexual restraint, such as what Jesus is advocating, experience the most flourishing in society, that's my words, but here's his words, and maintain the most creative social energy. In other words, there was great redemption and lift in that society. And those cultures that began to dismantle what he called strict regulations on sex, found their descent down into chaos and confusion. Where do you think we are today? Where do you think we are today? So why the, why the reaction? Why the reaction of the pundits and culture at large? Well, first, and there's nothing new under the sun. You go back into Paul's day and looked at uh, a lot of uh, the, the sexual distortion going on then, and it was profound. This cycles through. If we just go in the last maybe 60, 70 years, 
What first began to get dismantled was, oh, we don't really need covenant. It's just a piece of paper. But what we probably do need is commitment. And so we'll make a commitment to one another. But then if you hit into the hippie era era of the 1960s or so, it's like, no, really, I mean, we don't really need much commitment. It can be recreational, can it? Right? And so we just kind of put in some dotted lines here. It can be rec- it can be casual. But where have we gone today? Where have we gone today? If you go into a college campus, you'll see the flyers posted. You go into a coffee shop, you'll see the flyers posted. If you listen to public service announcements, you'll hear it. The only thing our culture can agree about today as it relates to sexual union is consent. Consensual sex. Just consent. Two people can kind of agree that they want to do that. And now all of a sudden, there's really nothing binding us together in any meaningful way, in any way of substance. And what culture is really seeming to do is a few things. One is we want to say, you know what? This, this really, we can just like parse this out. This used to be separate. We'll just make the body separate from other things. And it doesn't bleed over into the other things. It can be totally separate. That, that's one thing we see culture doing. The next thing we see culture doing, and I believe we're, we're prone to this, by the way, is we elevate the body and we make it all-consuming. We make it about everything. And this happens with every commercial that, that, that you almost watch, right? Is we elevate kind of the body, the skin, the flesh. And guess what? Marketers know this. Biologically, we are wired up for our, our eyes to go to skin, right? This is why if you have a plumber over your house and, and he bends over and, he, and he's working on the plumbing and you're like, oh, crap, I, I did not need to see that. Your eyes went to it. You didn't want to, but they did because you were wired up for that. Sorry, I just gave you that mental image. <laughs> but point being is it gets elevated and it preys upon a, a bit of how we, we were wired to do that. We elevate separate, but at the same time, here's the confusing part. We denigrate. We denigrate the body. We say, well, it's just my body, right? You know, it's, it's, it's just the body. I mean, it's, it's not like I'm dealing with my heart here. It's not like I'm dealing with other stuff. We, we denigrate the body, and actually, we don't have time for it, but that is a theory that goes back over 2,000 years. It's called Gnosticism, which said your soul's more important than your body. You can do whatever you want with your body. When the Bible says over and over, your body matters. Your body matters over and over and over. And lastly, there's a whole new realm in the last decade or so, and it's we fabricate the body. We simulate the body. You don't actually even need real bodies because of the digital age, because of virtual reality and everything else. We now fabricate the body. So why does culture so go, okay, you know, it's, it's interesting. Here's where I just think we're confused as a culture. We rightly abhor things like sexual abuse, sexual assault, misogyny, sex trafficking. Right, 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 right. Why then, when pornography gets mentioned, why can't we connect those dots? I'll tell you why. Because in our culture today, we've created these little bubbles around the individual. And we've said, whatever is your brain, that's your brain, whatever is your heart, 
that's your heart, whatever is your body, your genitalia, whatever is your soul, that's yours. And you have freedom and you have choice. In other words, we're talking about the autonomy of self to choose. And whatever you do in your spare time, whatever you do in secret, man, that is your business. And no harm will come. And that is the lie. And there are many of us in this room who can attest to just what a diabolical lie that is. Because what happens here, what happens here, what happens here flows there, flows there, flows there, flows there, there. And the harm that it is doing to us is intense and is immense. I want to talk about that briefly. I want to um, just give um, uh, credit to a really helpful source, Dr. Forrest Benedict from MNU. He's just recently written a book called Life After Lust. Um, in addition to a bunch of other resources, let's just talk for a second about the harm and the impact. Guess what age a person is first exposed to online pornography? Nine years of age. What was it for you? For me, it was six. It wasn't online, by the way. It was pre-online, but it was enough. It was enough. 12 to 17-year-olds represent the largest consumers of a $100 billion industry. 12.3% of young men view pornography every day or almost every day. Now look at that data. That was taken from 2007. What's significant about that? When was the iPhone invented or released? I believe is late 2007. Could you imagine what those numbers are today? In the college dormitories and on college campuses, 87% of the young men and 31% of women. As one author, Donald Hilton Jr. just says, look, this is how we are giving a sex education to our next generation. And it is bleeding and feeding into every way that we relate to other human beings. Whether it's our future spouses or whether it's our siblings or whether it's our friends or whether it's just a woman we see walking down the street, if you're a male, it is bleeding over into everything and it is ravaging us to a place where we're becoming and experiencing addiction-like levels like we're seeing with other substances of abuse. Same kind of patterns of behavior. The same kind of first high that you experience, then all of a sudden you need more high, but pretty soon you have to just keep ratcheting up the amount, the intensity, and the volume, not to just experience greater highs, but just to kind of feel normal. And then the inverse impact of it is just crazy, where actually uh, those who are experiencing more and more addiction are experiencing erectile dysfunction. Their sexual arousal and satisfaction is going down. It all computes to a law of diminishing returns, is what economists would call this, to the point where some are seeking out porn over food and water and certainly other kinds of relationships. The neuroscience on it is just stunning. That They'll watch a brain in an MRI scan, light up and secrete, like an alcoholic watching a beer commercial, the same parts of the brain light up. An SPECT scan, which uh, shows at, at a different kind of level what's going on in the brain. Here's a brain that's just kind of normal in its functioning. Here's a brain on 
heroin, addicted to heroin, and here's a brain on pornography. Now, I, I'm not a neuroscientist, so I, I can't explain all the ins and outs on that. Here's what I know, is that the CEO part of your brain, the prefrontal cortex, gets hijacked. And the connectivity between that part of the brain and the other parts of the brain no longer are able to communicate to one another. So what it means are things like this for somebody. It means emotional disconnection, short attention span, impulsivity, procrastination, disorganization, poor judgment, lack of empathy, insight, and forward thinking. This is the harm that's happening to the self. And as I've had the opportunity just to talk with Scott and learn more of his journey, that's been his experience as well. Some of what he's about to describe is kind of PG-13 as he talks about here's what happens as the addiction begins to take hold. Let's watch. But I would say really the, the dependency on pornography really happened when I got my first smartphone. That was a portal to a world that I didn't even know existed. Um, you know, I got my first iPhone, I believe, in um, the fall of 2009. And having that much power and access in the palm of your hand when you would be alone somewhere in the darkness, um, it was intoxicating. It was, it was way, way too accessible, way too easy. It, um, I would say it ramped up from, from you know, magazines and cable TV and movies to, um, you know, the internet, obviously, um, you know, looking at more perverse types of sex acts instead of just regular old vanilla sex. It had to be, um, you know, had to be bigger and wilder and crazier and um, the more uh, perverse, you know, the, the better the experience, I suppose. Uh, it's, I guess it's like feeding a drug, you know, after a while you, you get used to that certain level and then it doesn't really, you know, give you the fix that you need so you gotta amp it up just a little bit more. Um, it got to the point, too, where it wasn't just me looking at things. It was I needed to be a participant in it. And part of what uh, will be referenced later is that Scott is a victim of abuse about the age of five, six, or seven years of age. And so what occurred from someone else impacted him. And that's a part of his story, and I'll come back in, in terms of some of the breakthrough uh, that he was experiencing as well. Point being, there is harm. There's harm to self, and it's never containable. It can never be isolated to you. It will always spill over. Here are just some of the ways of where the resources correlated pornography to other things like domestic violence, like <clears throat> excuse me, discrimination against women, disinterest in kids and family, divorce. And about divorce, here's just a couple of stats. 
of um, one partner met someone else online, a, uh, you know, an adulterous relationship. 56% said they had an obsessive pornographic viewing. And look at the data. That was 17 years ago. That was 2002. Could you imagine? Now with Facebook, now with Pinterest, now with everything else uh, available to us. I mean, it would just be shocking and stunning to know of the impact on us, but on our most important relationships. And that's the other part where it just flows over and the other person has to bear now a sense of betrayal and pain. And that's where Kenyon's story comes back in. As she just describes that night that she first found the pornographic material on Scott's phone and, um, and what that did in her. Let's watch. No sleep, three in the morning, and I went and slept in one of our daughter's beds because his girls weren't there at the time. I sleep, I went in there and I, I just, I just collapsed. I was crying, I was pissed. I was, I, I was every emotion just going through me all at once. And I think he heard me, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And he came in. And I think you asked me what was wrong. And I th like, just kind of threw the tablet at him. And I'm like, what is, who are you? What is all this? And I don't really remember. <laughs> I've kind of blocked a lot of that. <laughs> yeah. um, I don't really remember what you said. Um, he didn't deny it. Um, I don't really remember what you said, but I remember getting up and our wedding pictures were just surrounding. I mean, I'm a picture freak and wedding pictures were surrounding us and I'm like taking them down and throwing them on the bed and I'm, you know, these are lies, lies, you know, <laughs> I mean, yeah. I can laugh now. Um, not laughing at the time, but yeah. um, I just was so just, I felt so betrayed. I felt so, um, and it was such a betrayal, so much more than any, and I had been married before, and I had been cheated on before, but this was such a betrayal. We just, we just know that Kenyon's story is equally as important um, because of how so many of us that moment was, they, they, uh, the Delks, Scott and Kenyon, described it as their Hiroshima moment in, in, in their world. But they have that day marked, just like I, I prayed for us today. They have that day marked as one of the best days in their life because of what, what God has done. But in that moment, what actually occurred was Scott felt immediately released because finally I'm out from under all the darkness and it's like a teeter-totter, and I see this all the time. If a person is weighed down in secrets and in shame, but finally comes into the light, it's like, boom, whoo, oh my gosh, God's forgiveness, God's grace, but who's now carrying all the burden and all the pain? It's the loved one. And so that sparked a journey for both of them. And what it sparks for me is this they're just coming back to this passage where Paul is writing the, the words in the deep heart of God. And, and I wish we had time to literally just plow through 14 verses. We won't. 
but, but it's this chunky part that at first blush could feel really almost harsh. But if you look through the, the sequence of what God is really trying to tell us, I think it's three things. It's number one, you're my kids and I love you dearly. Like all of the caution and, and all of the, like him wanting to go there with us is because he loves us and he wants so much more for us. And what does he want for us? He says a little bit later on in this passage, he says this, live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists of, and this is what he, what he wants for us, goodness. And you know what goodness is? That's not like moralistic goodness. That really means generosity. He wants us just to be free that when you're stuck in a dark place, there's so much hiding, there's so, so much obfuscating, there's so much juggling around. And he just wants, no, like I want a generosity where there is in you a presence and an availability of spirit where you're open-handed because you're a whole integrated person, emotionally, intellectually, spiritually, and physically. That's what goodness means. Righteousness, what does that mean? We've talked about that a lot. It means right relating with God, within ourselves, and with one another. And the outflow of that is right living. But it starts with this like, this relationship God wants for you and for me, for our relationships to thrive and to flourish and to be far better than what you were experiencing here today. And he wants to lead us into truth. That's the third word. And truth is really that which sets us free where we gotta go to the reality, marry that with, with the redemption. That's where the healing occurs. That's where the unleashing occurs. That's where the releasing and the freedom happens. This is what God wants for his kids. This is his heart. And he moves into the next section about pornea and pornos and greed and all of these things because he's just going, look, these are the things that's ripping you apart. Greed is ripping you apart in your relationships with God, within yourself, and with others. Sexual immorality, ripping you apart with God in your own self, in relationship with others. It's ripping you apart. He says this, but among you, just there should be no part of this. This is God's heart and love for us. And again, I just want to remind this, we're not hitting on the how but he's saying, I want you to walk in a new way, in the way of love, where there's a generosity of spirit, where there's right relationship, where, where there's a, a truth, and you're no longer hiding, and how will you do that? Well, again, we're going to pray here, and anyone about anything can come. We have a care and counseling line that we want you to call or bit.ly to find. We have a follow-up night where we'll get more into the brass tacks of how do we walk into the light, that's the third movement that the Apostle Paul is using here. From you're my kids, I love you dearly, to, oh, this is ripping you apart, to now I just want to invite you. The sun is pouring in. It's been a long winter, but the sun is pouring in. And will you just come and bathe in the warmth of my light? He goes on to say this, just give you a little bit more of the expanded view of this from the scriptures. Everything exposed by the light becomes visible. I know that's what we're afraid of. But look what he says. Everything that is illuminated becomes a light. Paul's talking full circle here. I know our greatest fear is if I step out, I'll be judged, I'll be condemned, I'll lose everything. I, I, 
I, I, I might as well die. And Paul's going, no, 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 no. You step in the light. You're forgiven. You're loved. This is a safe place. And guess what? You'll become light to others, just like the Delks are to us. And that's why he says this. Wake up, sleeper. I know you're walking around and, and you're taking breaths, but I, I know you're suffocating inside. It's, it's like everyone else is awake, but you feel asleep. Rise from the dead. I know, I know you walk upon this earth and you're living, but does it not feel like you're six feet buried underneath the ground and you don't know how to come out from that darkness? Let the warmth of his light shine on you. And I guarantee you, if you step into that light, it will not be the end of you. It'll be a new day. It'll be a new reality. However the lights, light finds you, it'll set you free. That's the story. That's the moment at 3 a.m. for Kenyon. She's encountered all of these things. And their story continues. A lot of work, a lot of journey. You'll hear about that. But in that moment, God grabs her heart as Scott is sobbing beyond pale and something breaks in her heart and it's beautiful and it's what we want for all of us I'm going to ask you to watch this in a moment and we'll sit in a, a, a just a, a brief moment of silence and then uh, we'll dismiss let's watch I think right before that second everything in me as a human wanted to run wanted to walk out, wanted to pack my bags and leave and protect myself. And seeing him sitting there and, and just broken and sobbing like that, I saw that four or five-year-old boy who nobody ever stood up for, who nobody ever put their arms around who nobody ever told that was wrong what happened to you. But it wasn't your fault. And I mean, I saw him as if, I mean, it, it ran through my head. I saw him as if he were my son, you know, that, I mean, if that happened to my son, what, what I would want done, what I would, you know, as a mother would want um, and I just, I, I just, it, it, all I can explain is that it was Christ in me. You know, I loved him as Christ would love him. And, um, I mean, we sat there like that. I don't know how long. I found a safe place
trying to think about how to dismiss us today and grab Tom Bronner. We really, we know this is a really tender and delicate space. So I'm going to ask us to do something kind of different today. Normally, after uh, every service, we hope the conversation just starts here and it continues in your car or drive home or uh, in bed at night or with your roommates, just that the conversation continues. But I want to ask that for the next 24 hours, it not. Because there's a, there's a sense of like fear and shame and, and, and on, on uh, whomever you might be with here today where you want to go, okay, this is your issue, you're going to deal with it. Or you're carrying this burden of wondering fearfully, is the person you're with dealing with that? And it can have this tendency to kind of create an unsafe place, right? Where it's more shame-based, fear-based, and, and all of those things. And so I want to create, this is kind of like my, my pastoral heart, I want to create a safe place as we leave here by asking the conversation for every single one of us to just be with the Lord, just to be with God. And ask him to be your safe place. For the next 24 hours, would you go before him and just say, God, what does it mean for me to walk into the warmth of your light, to step into the warmth of your light? Pornography might not be your deal. It could be something completely unrelated to the topic of sexual healing. But for all of us, Allow God to be your safe place and ask him things like, oh Lord, are you calling me here and now? Is this my moment to step into the light? Is this my moment to share with those that I love? Is this my moment for a new day and a new reality? Okay, 24 hour kind of moratorium for each of us to allow the Lord to root out our shame, our fear, our anxiety, and to come into maybe a conversation that will need to happen from a, a place of peace and love and grace that we might be a safe place to one another. Deal? Yeah? I'm assuming deal. I can't see you, okay? We'll be here to pray. We hope to see you not only next Sunday, but on the 27th Wednesday night and our care providers are always available. Go in the freeing, liberating light of the Lord today. In Jesus' name, amen.